following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Well, I'm, I'm really glad to see you all this morning and to, to be able to gather together and to worship Jesus with you all. Um, this week, we're continuing in our series called Servant King, the Gospel of Mark. So let's go ahead and jump in because we have a bunch to do this morning. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark 6, and we'll be in verses 1 to 13. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have free Bibles, and we want to give one to you. Uh, they are available in the Connection Center uh, right through these doors over here, and you can grab one of those after our gathering. So if you don't have one, please go grab one because we want everyone to have a Bible. All right. Did you guys find your way to Mark 6, verse 1 yet? Hello? <laughs> I'm going to say yes. It's not that hard to find. Okay. So let's go ahead and read this. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him, and and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Now, I'm going to be honest um, that, that when Pastor Vince and I sat down and we're kind of thinking through things, looking through things, planning things out, uh, and, and I discovered that I would be teaching on the first part of Mark 6, I was um, a little bummed out. Uh, and kind of nervous. I was like, man, can, can I get a, a whole sermon out of this set of scriptures? Um, and, and my mind immediately went to this thought of, okay, so in Mark we have, we have John the Baptist, we have Jesus teaching and preaching uh, parables, we have Jesus doing miracles, and all these big and, and really well-known things. And I have the first half of chapter 6, which is, at first glance, Jesus goes home, they reject him, and Jesus sends out the twelve on a, on a mini-mission test run, if you will. So in my mind, it was, Jesus cast out demons, and Jesus goes home. That's how I saw it at first, anyways. But but the Lord quickly uh, corrected my bad attitude as I began to to read the passage more and more and to study. Um, And as I did, I I realized that there was plenty here uh, to be studied, to learn, and uh, and for instruction, just as all of Scripture is. 
There's actually a lot in, in this section of Scripture, so much so that, that I couldn't flesh out everything uh, that is contained here. So this is my attempt, with the help of the Holy Spirit, because I need His help, uh, to teach what the Lord would have me say. I've, I've given this sermon the title, People of Rejection. It's, it's a simple title, but, but there's, there's deeper meaning. And here's what I mean, and, and this will kind of show you where we're going as well this morning. The title, People of Rejection, is in three parts. The people of, of Jesus' hometown reject him. We often reject Jesus. And lastly, if we follow Jesus, we will be rejected. So that's the, the people of Jesus' hometown reject him. We are often people who reject Jesus. And if we follow Jesus, we will be people who are rejected. Now, I've said all that, but those aren't necessarily my, my three main points. But everything I talk about today will, will fit into these categories. And as we go through, through these, you'll, you'll see uh, how these three ideas kind of play out. So where are we at in the book of, of Mark so far? Um, so far, I, the stories in Mark, have this, Jesus has displayed lordship over nature, demons, and death. But, but in Nazareth, among his own people, he encounters misunderstanding and rejection. So far in, in Mark, the crowds have been amazed at Jesus' authority, but in Nazareth, it's Jesus who is amazed at their disbelief. So Jesus, he, he leaves the area uh, around the, the Sea of Galilee, and he heads to his hometown of, of Nazareth. And, and Nazareth was, was basically a, a nowhere town made up of, of people that no one knew unless you lived there. Uh, the population was probably between two to five hundred people. Nazareth isn't even mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in the Apocrypha. It's not mentioned in any rabbinic uh, literature, and it's not even mentioned in the writings of Josephus. So here's here's what I'm saying. It's a tiny town. It's small. It, it's insignificant seeming. But but given the small size of the town, everyone would have known Jesus and his family. So, so here is, is Jesus returning home with his disciples. So the Bible says with his disciples. And I don't, I, I don't want to skip over this part. It seems insignificant, but, but I just want to point this out as we quickly move along. Jesus is with his disciples. So uh, here is Jesus with, with 12 people, each a man who was, was a witness to his mission. Each could testify of the miracles Jesus had worked, to the holiness of his life, to the power of his prayers. And, and this is just an, an interesting little fact that, that I didn't want us to miss, as the evidence is, is kind of building about who Jesus is in the face uh, of the people of Nazareth. Uh, also worth noting is that this is Jesus' second visit to Nazareth since the start of his ministry. So here, here's how the first time went. So this is the second time. The first time went like this. Um, it's recorded in Luke, and it's where he entered the synagogue. He quoted Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and he said, hey, this right here, it's about me. I'm the Messiah. And here's how the people of Nazareth responded. They chased him out of town and tried to throw him off a cliff. So... Um, for some reason, Jesus said, you know what, I'm going to go back there. <laughs> so <laughs> this is now Jesus going back for a second time. And guess where he is the second time? He's back in the synagogue again. And again, the, the people were amazed at, at, at what he was, was saying. And they were overwhelmed by what they were hearing. But their amazement quickly turns into skepticism. 
And, and as they, their amazement turns into skepticism, they start saying things to, to try to discredit Jesus. Things like, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And here's what they were basically saying. Jesus, we know you, but we don't claim you. They're attempting to, to distance themselves, and, and they're showing suspicion by referring to him as this man. They're saying, Jesus, we know that, that you were not schooled in rabbinic fashion, but you are a manual laborer. You work with wood and stone, not with, with a rabbi and the word of God. They, the, the people of Nazareth, they couldn't conceive how a man with no formal theological training could, could achieve such insight into the word of God. So I quickly, um, I promise I don't do this often, but I quickly want to take a little rabbit trail. I try not to do this. <laughs> but uh, in my study, uh, I came across this, and I thought it was really awesome, and so I just wanted to share it with you guys. Is that cool? Okay. Um, so throughout history, some people, uh, like, in, in, like in the hometown of Jesus, um, have thought of Jesus' employment as a carpenter that somehow discredited his message. And in ancient Rome, there was terrible persecution of, of Christians under the emperor Julian. And at that time, there was a philosopher who, who was mocking a Christian, and he asked him, what do you think the carpenter's son is doing now, condescendingly? And the Christian quickly responded, and he answered, he is building a coffin for Julian. What? Sick burn! That is so sick! What? I got so stoked when I read that. I got up and like walked around the room like, are you kidding me? What? Anyways, I'm sorry. I just got real excited about it. All right. That, that's, how you, that's how you do a burn right there. A Christian burn at that, if you will. <laughs> okay, okay. So back to, to where we were. Um, earlier in the book of Mark, in, in Mark 3, it says that, that Jesus' own people, his, his family and friends, went to grab him and, and take him out of, out of the public because they thought he was insane. And then and same earlier in the book of Mark, the scribes uh, who had come down from Jerusalem were saying that he was the devil and, and that's how he was able to do these types of things, these, these miracles and wonders. And here the people of, of Nazareth are echoing those same thoughts by saying, who gave him this wisdom and power? They were basically saying, you know what? I bet it was the devil, and I bet Jesus is possessed. That's, that's what they were saying. Even, even the way the, the hometown people of, of Jesus addressed him as the son of Mary was, was most likely meant to be derogatory. It was, it was contrary back then to, to culture to, to refer as a man as the son of his mother, even if, if his mother was a widow. So this was probably in reference to the rumors around the small town uh, of Jesus' supposed illegitimate birth. Basically, they were saying, Jesus, we don't even know who your dad is. And ultimately, here's what the people of Nazareth were saying. Jesus, you are just one of us. You are ordinary, just like us. Yet, yet here's, what is, here's what's amazing. They were, they were saying this. You're ordinary. You're just like us. That's, that's essentially what they were saying when they were throwing all these kind of derogatory things, these insults, these questions. And, and here's what's amazing is, is that they weren't denying that Jesus was saying and doing great things. And so one commentator, he says it like this. In spite of what they heard and saw, 
they failed to penetrate the veil of ordinariness. They, they couldn't get over the fact that, that Jesus was an ordinary person just like them. Rather than, than perceiving the, the depth of his teaching and the compassion of his actions to the Nazarenes, they chose to belittle him by referring to his background and their familiarity with him and his family. They simply couldn't reconcile what he has done with who they think he must be. So their response was to take offense at Jesus. You see, Jesus' teachings and his wonders, uh, they should have led the people to embrace him as Messiah, but they rejected what they could not understand. John Calvin, a theologian, he, he says this, It is not mere ignorance that hinders men, but that, of their own accord, they search after grounds of offense to, pre- to prevent them from following the path to which God provides. The family, friends, and neighbors of Jesus were too familiar with Jesus. They knew little enough about him to think that they knew everything about him. So the question is, how about you? How about me? Can the same be said of us? Are we too familiar with Jesus? Have we become too comfortable and too complacent with Jesus? Do we actually know little enough about him to think that we know everything about him? It's good for us to to reflect on how we treat Jesus, the servant king, and how we respond to the one who was rejected by those who were certain knew him best. We must see Jesus as he truly is and as he is revealed in scripture and, and not as we might hope or wish or want him to be. You see, most people, they aren't neutral when it comes to Jesus. Everyone has an opinion, but oftentimes those opinions, they, they, they don't measure up or line up with the full biblical portrait of who Jesus is. I think, I think often what happens is we, we have this propensity to, to take this um, buffet approach, if you will, to Jesus, that, that we go through selecting the parts of Jesus that we find pleasing to our taste, and the other parts we kind of just pass over or discard. So, so maybe you've been a Christian a, a long time and, and you have lost the wonder of exactly who Jesus is, or maybe the possibility is you've never really truly known. Have we known Jesus long enough that, that we just see him as something we tag on to our life and not our Savior who is to be worshipped and our whole life to be centered around? Have we maybe stopped studying his word and thought we know enough about him to be comfortable enough with him? Have we stopped talking to him in prayer? Unless, of course, we get in a pinch, then we'll talk to him. Do his words no longer convict? Do his miracles no longer astonish? Does his death on the cross no longer strike us as amazing? There's an idiom, an old idiom, that, that says familiarity breeds contempt. I'm sure you've all heard this. And apparently, <clears throat> this was the case with Nazareth, with Nazareth and with Jesus. May we not be like the people of, of Nazareth and say we will not let the evidence get in our way and nothing will change our minds. You see, sometimes we, we spend so much time with someone that we no longer appreciate them. We should never get too comfortable with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus didn't come to make us comfortable. His goal isn't to make us comfortable. His goal is to bring us to repentance and faith 
and, and for us to humbly fall at his feet and confess him as Lord and God. That's his goal. You see, Jesus isn't your boy. He isn't your buddy. He isn't your significant other. He isn't a genie who is there to, to grant your every wish. But at the same exact time, he's not some ordinary guy who lived 2,000 years ago, stirred up things for a few years, and then got nailed to a cross for his troubles. The people of Jesus' hometown got it wrong. And for a while, his relatives got it wrong. Rome got it wrong, and the religious leaders got it wrong. And still today, many of us get him wrong. May we be people who, who seek to know the true Jesus as revealed to us in Scripture. May we be people who study his word and constantly go to him in prayer. May we be people who never lose all of who Jesus is and what he has done and continues to do. May we not be complacent people who know little enough about Jesus that we think we know everything about him and in fact end up rejecting the real Jesus. I'm going to say that again. May we not be people who are so complacent that we know little enough about Jesus that we think we know everything about him and in fact end up rejecting the real Jesus. May we be people who worship Jesus and not our, our own idol it, that's, a, that's a monstrous Frankenstein of who Jesus has revealed himself to be. We don't get to worship Jesus on our own terms. Jesus told us who he is and that's who we worship. We worship Jesus who is God, who was there and spoke everything into existence, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus who walked and talked with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus who has been faithful generation after generation. Jesus who is the Son of God and, and who even though he was God, emptied himself and humbled himself and was born of a virgin, lived the perfect life that we should have but never could have, and then died our place in our place for our sins. We worship Jesus who then later rose three days later and, and proving that everything he said was true. We worship Jesus who conquered death, hell, and the grave. And that Jesus that we worship, he said to us, all you have to do is believe in the finished work and you're no longer rebels, but you are sons and daughters. You are no longer clothed in unrighteousness, but you are clothed in righteousness. We worship Jesus who now sits at the right hand of God the Father as our friend and our mediator. That's who Jesus is, and that's who we worship, and he's so much more than that. Don't ever become so familiar with him that, that you miss that, that you take that for granted, that, that, that loses the awesomeness that it deserves. Don't ever worship a counterfeit Jesus who is in all of this and so much more. Here, here's, here's the goal. The more we know about Jesus, the more we should worship, the more we should surrender, and the more we should want to tell others about him. Now, as I was writing this, I was tempted to just stop right there and be like, whoop, done, let's worship Jesus, let's sing some songs. Um, <laughs> but there's a, there's a lot more here, so... Let's keep, let's keep uh, going. Let, I'm going to read verses um, 4 to 6 again, and it says this. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. 
and he wondered at their unbelief. So in the face of unbelief and rejection, Jesus quotes a proverb, and and this idea and even the wording and and the saying would have been common uh, back then. Jesus takes over this this common idea as he he does and as the disciples do often. They they take over a, a common idea in the culture and they kind of flip it on its head. And so Jesus takes this, this common idea and he applies it uh, in three areas to Nazareth. He applies it to his hometown, to his relatives, and his own house. In each area he is applying this to, it becomes more and more restricted and more and more personal. We also see that Jesus, in response to unbelief and rejection, it says that he could do no miracle there, which which can sound kind of weird and maybe even troubling at first, because it almost sounds that, that, like that, that without belief, Jesus has no power and is incapable of doing any miracle, which is so silly, especially when you have um, a mind like mine that immediately goes to thinking of the movie The Santa Claus with Tim Allen. And so here's why my mind went to this. Uh, in, in the movie, Tim Allen, he becomes Santa Claus. I'm, I'm really rushing through how this, this movie goes. So, in the movie, he becomes Santa Claus. And basically, without belief in him, Santa Claus, the sleigh with the reindeer won't fly. I know this is goofy. Just This is how my mind works. I'm just let, opening the window and letting you see inside a little bit. So, with, without belief in him, Santa Claus... The sleigh wouldn't fly. So at the end of the movie, there's this scene where everyone's uh, around, I think it's like Central Park or something, and like they start singing Christmas songs, and uh, somehow singing Christmas songs means belief in Santa, and so the meter on the sleigh is like, whoop, and it goes up because people start believing in Santa Claus, and so all of a sudden the sleigh can fly, and he can go and deliver all the presents to all the little boys and girls. Now... Are we really willing to stop at face value and say that this is how we understand Jesus' power and ability to do miraculous works? Are we really willing to to say that this is how we believe Jesus' power works? Now, there there are some some Christians who are willing to, to land here and say that the only way God's power works is that if our human faith gives that power to God. Some would even place the blame on on weak faith whenever a person is not healed of a disease. Our our faith is seen as as so powerful that that God is unable to act without it. And often this this type of thinking, this is so so sad and so infuriating to me. Often all this does is further injure sick people and, and places the blame of their continued infirmity upon themselves. So, I don't think we can stop there. And I, and I think that believing that way, it, it betrays a, a surface-level reading of the verses, and it doesn't even consider the, the, the wider ministry of Jesus. There's actually quite a few different instances where Jesus heals when there is little faith or no faith. And there's a lot of them, but I'll just mention a couple. Um, he restored the son of a man who cried out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus raises Lazarus, Lazarus from the dead when Martha didn't believe at all. And then Jesus also calmed the storm in the very midst of the disciples' faithlessness. 
We even see here in this passage that, that Jesus could do no miracle there except he healed a few sick people. So it, 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 it's not that Mark meant that their unbelief somehow sapped Jesus' power, but rather that Christ could, couldn't do many miracles because the circumstances under which the Lord readily shows himself were not present. So, so why? So I, I, th- I think it's, it's this, because the miracles of, of Jesus, they, they bore witness to his identity as the Son of God, but the people in Nazareth had rejected him. So Jesus couldn't give any further confirmation of his identity that they would accept. Nothing he could have done would have, would have made them believe because they had already hardened their hearts against the revelation that they had already enjoyed, th- that knowing Jesus very well. Tim Keller is helpful here, and he, and he says this, Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks designed to prove how powerful he was, but they were signs of the kingdom to show his redemptive power and how it operates. His miracles always healed and restored and delivered people in ways that revealed how we are to find him by faith and have our lives transformed by him. He could, do, he could not do a deed that would not redeem. So, so why couldn't Jesus do a miracle? I think Jesus didn't do a miracle because he would not in the face of blatant unbelief. He, he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them, but imagine what he could have done if there was faith. John Calvin says, Unbelievers, as far as lies in their power, bind up the hands of God by their obstinacy. Not that God is overcome as if he were inferior, but because they do not permit him to display his power. Because they do not permit him to display his power. So I, I do think that there are, are ways that we as, as believers, as Christians, can, can hinder the power of God in our lives. I think that if, if we're like the Nazarenes and we lose the wonder of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, we won't see his power in our lives. If, if Jesus has become routine and taken for granted, if, if, if your gratitude and amazement for his person and work has worn off, then you can expect not to see him work. If we choose to disobey him, if we refuse to give him priority in our time and in our lives, we shouldn't expect to see his power in our lives. And if we choose not to, to seek his face in prayer and, and ask him to intervene, well, then why would we see his power in our lives? Oh, church, may this, may this never be said of us that, that because we lost the wonder of Jesus, that because of our disobedience, because we refuse to seek Jesus' face in prayer, that we do not permit God to display his power. Now, you might be saying, wait, wait, wait a minute. That kind of sounds like the exact opposite of what you just said a minute ago. But he, here's what I'm saying. Hebrews 11.6 reminds us that, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that if we believe and seek him, God will reward us. So it's clear that, that God desires faith and rewards faith. After all, isn't that how we are come we, we come to be saved. But here's what we also know. That, that God is not a genie or a, or a puppet on strings whom we control with our faith. We cannot make him do what we want with some, some specific like formula or something. 
God is sovereign and he's in control of everything and he heals according to his will. That means that faith is not an absolute condition for divine healing. Although although God does often help those who trust that he will do so, sometimes he chooses not to heal those who have faith and to heal those who do not believe. We have to trust Okay, here's what I'm saying. This, this, is, this is the summary of it all. And I know this is probably going to be infuriating to some people, but this is the true summary. And if we could get this, I think we, we would really understand how this works. That we have to trust that God is sovereign and in control of everything. And at the exact same time, we have to, we have to trust that he is able and completely and totally able to heal either here and now or in ultimate healing when we see him face to face. So God is in control of everything. He's sovereign and we can trust him. And at the same time, no matter what the outcome is, we have to believe that God is capable and able and willing to heal us. So the other way Jesus responds uh, to, to rejection and unbelief from the people of his hometown was that he wondered at their unbelief. Only twice in the Bible is, is Jesus said to be amazed or marveled or, or wondered, depending on your translation of the Bible. In Luke 7, 9, uh, Jesus uh, saw the, the faith of a Roman centurion who believed he could heal from a distance, distance with just a word. And then here in Mark 6, 6 he's amazed by their unbelief. Uh, by the unbelief of the people of his hometown. We never read that Jesus marveled at, at art or architecture or even the wonders of creation. We don't read that, that Jesus marveled at human ingenuity or invention, but Jesus did marvel at faith. When it was, was present in an unexpe- unexpected place and when it was absent where it should have been. Jesus and his hometown are, are dumbfounded by each other, <laughs> kind of, in a sense. They, the, the people of Jesus' hometown, they, they couldn't get past Jesus' humble origins and familiar feel. Jesus was astounded by their unbelief in light of, of what he had done and what he had said. You see, um, all of humanity at times, like the Nazarenes, wanted Wanted a, want a spectacular sign of, of, of God or a great display of power. Humanity doesn't want God to, to become a human being like one of us. That's why we see often um, that all other religions offer salvation as, as some form of, of liberation from ordinariness, from human ordinariness. So we, just like the, the Nazarenes, often say things like, if only God were less ordinary and more unique, then we would believe. If only God would do something more powerful and miraculous and, ah, right in front of my eyes, then maybe we would believe. And we often say things like, God, you are too much like us for us to be in awe of you. And what this is a result of, this is, this is often our, our short-sighted perception or our often forgetful view of the majesty and splendor of Jesus. We as Human beings often want something other than what God gives. Can I get an amen? Is that true? 
Have you, have, you, have you been there before, that often we want something other than what God gives and provides? I, I, I would say that, that one of the biggest obstacles to faith isn't that God hasn't acted or done something, but it's, it's often the unwillingness of our hearts to accept the God who condescends to us. How, how heartbreaking is this? That we, as humanity, that we even sometimes as Christians have the propensity to say that we can't accept God because he has come too close to us. You see, unbelief is, is the ultimate distortion of what is. And so unbelief is, is never okay. Unbelief is, is dangerous and it's always destructive. It always leads to trouble. Because, because of, of unbelief, Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. And, and because of unbelief, the children of Israel were, were led into captivity. And because of unbelief, Jesus had to die. So the question is for you and for me, in case you haven't seen so far in this sermon, I have a lot of questions based off this. Because what we're doing is taking this and we're, we're doing this like it's a mirror. And saying, show me. Show me where I'm failing. Show me where, where I can be more and more like Jesus. Because isn't that what we all want? Or should want? So, the question is for you and for me that would Jesus marvel at your faith or at your unbelief? And I think if we're honest, the, the answer to that most often is Yes. Right? <laughs> so how, how does our faith often um, sway towards unbelief? I, I think that much of the time, it's, it's kind of this, this right here. It's either us submitting to the claims and truths of the gospel or us relying on this in what seems most reasonable to us. You see, because the, the gospel was upside down and it's opposite of what we see here in this life now. The, the gospel says things like, the first will be last, and you have to lose your life to save it. The gospel says things like, you don't work your way to God, but you just believe that you could never do it and believe that Jesus did it for you and for me. And that's so backwards to how we would typically see things here and now. So do we submit to the claims and truths of the gospel or do we rely on what seems most reasonable to us? Not that this isn't reasonable, but I think that often our, our eyes are, are clouded and our vision is clouded and we don't see the truth of the gospel. Or, or, well, let me give you some examples. Do you embrace the call of the gospel that, that Jesus didn't come to, to just make your little kingdom work, but that he, he came and, and invited you into a much better and bigger kingdom? And so... So this is, this is what our response should be, but oftentimes it's, it's, it's not, and this is where our faith kind of sways towards unbelief. Our response to that is that our greatest thrill in life should be, not be in, in getting our own way, but the greatest thrill in life should be at the advancement of the kingdom of God. More examples. Do you embrace Christ's call to be salt and light in this world, or do we take that lightly? Do we embrace the call to go and make disciples? Do we believe that, that God truly works all things for the good of those who love him? Uh, or, or do we, here's how our, our faith can sway towards unbelief. So do we believe that? Do we believe that God works all things 
for the good of those who love him and serve him? Or do we, when circumstances get hard and dark and the load unusually heavy, begin to to question whether God is good and loving and trustworthy? I have more. Do we trust in the promise that, that God will never leave us or forsake those of us who trust in him? Or do we fall into despair and question where he is when things become stressful? Oh, wait, but there's more. Do we believe that the gospel can truly save and redeem anyone and everyone? Or, or have we met someone and we're like, um, nope, they're beyond hope. They can't be saved. Huh? Or, or do, we, do we say, oh, what? Not them? Uh, don't you know what they've done? Don't you know who they are? Or do we truly believe that the gospel can save and redeem? Or, or perhaps, perhaps do we believe that we are the one that is somehow beyond hope? And we are the one who has done too much for the gospel of Christ to redeem? That somehow, this is what we believe sometimes when our faith sways towards unbelief. That somehow we've been so bad that the blood of Christ is not powerful enough to wash us white as snow. May we not be people of of unbelief, but may we be full of faith that is grounded in the truths of the Bible and in the claims of the gospel. Okay, so let's let's quickly move on. I'm I'm trying to keep trucking. There's a lot here and a lot more I could say, but I'm trying to, to, to go. So I want to read 7 to 13 again. And I know I keep referring back to these verses, but I just want them to be fresh in our mind as we kind of take a, take a look at each section of these verses. So 7 to 13, I want to read those again. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil, many sick people and healing them. So as we look at this this section of, of Scripture, we have to, to, to be in a mindset, we have to look at them in the context of rejection. Jesus isn't simply giving his followers uh, directions for the mission, but he is, he's getting them ready to experience rejection just as he w- was rejected by his neighbors. After all, Jesus is literally sending them out in his power and authority with his message. So, so why would the outcome be any different that some will reject? For the first time, the, the disciples of Christ are no longer witnesses to the work of the kingdom, but they're now called to be participants in the work of the kingdom. And here's what I'll say. If you are God's child, you are not only welcomed into his kingdom, but you have been drafted into the work of his kingdom. The disciples were extension, extensions just as we are of King Jesus. Just like the disciples, we are his ambassadors. We represent the king. That's not something to be taken lightly. 
Jesus sends the disciples out with his authority and power in his message. And just like the disciples, we in, in and of ourselves have no power or authority or message that can save. We are, are humble vessels that, that Jesus, that God has chosen to include in his mission. So the first thing we see here is that Jesus sends out the disciples in teams or, or pairs and the disciples, they were to be in, in a supportive uh, network. They weren't supposed to be vulnerable, lone rangers. So what, what do we see from that? Excuse me. We see that there is need for fellowship in the Christian life and mission because there are plenty of hardships that we will face. So we're not to be lone rangers. Ecclesiastes even says that, that two are better than one. We were made for community. And the Bible makes that plain and clear, and I don't have time to get into that today. Otherwise, we would be here forever. But the Bible makes it clear that we were made for community. And, and here's what we also know, that unconnected Christians will most assuredly fall under the pressures. So what else? Jesus told the disciples to rely on the hospitality of the people that they would be preaching to. They, they weren't supposed to stay separated from the people they were trying to, to reach. They were truly to live among them and, and even be dependent on them. This made them accountable to the people. The world is, is going to be prejudiced against Christians, so we, we are not to give it ammunition. Be, why, why would they be prejudiced against us? Hello? Because this right here. Because, because we... And I'll say this later, but because we say things like, um, Jesus is the only way, because it's true. And especially in a culture now that, that says there is no absolute truth, why would we not be rejected and, and, and pushed away? This, this also gave, so living among the people and relying on them, this also gave the disciples the opportunity not only to preach the gospel, but to live it. Same for us. And so it also gave them the opportunity to, to live a life of faith, to be dependent on God and his provision, and, and the same is true for us as we go through our lives. We're not to rely on our jobs, but we're, rely, we're supposed to rely on God's provision and his mercy and grace. The disciples went out and, and they met uh, physical needs by healing and casting out and anointing. And we, as followers of Christ, are, are to serve people both practically and spiritually. We should be people who are servants. We should strive to emulate, listen, we should strive to emulate the kindness of God, which the Bible says leads men to repentance. We should address felt needs as a way to, to open hearts to gospel truths. We are to be servants and to respect and to love everyone. But, but here's also what happened. The disciples, first and foremost, went and preached repentance. This is the same message that was, that was preached by John the Baptist and Jesus. So for us, despite coming in servant mode, we aren't to be cowards. We're to preach the full gospel, including repentance, even, even if it brings rejection and persecution. We aren't supposed to seek to avoid persecution and rejection by, by compromising the message of repentance. 
We are called to to love and to serve others, and yet at the exact same time have the courage to tell the truth about Christ and the gospel. We have to go and we have to tell the good news, but at the same time, we have to tell the bad news. So if, if repentance was most likely the first word out of the mouth of John, Jesus, and the apostles, then most likely it's an important component of the gospel in the Christian life. Now, as has been a theme apparently also during this sermon, I don't have time to get into this, but I do want to leave you with, with a couple uh, quotes and thoughts to, to kind of maybe whet our appetite to go and study repentance on our own. Uh, and maybe for us to see how important it is. Uh, And maybe at a later time, a sermon can be preached on repentance. But in the meantime, here are a few things to to think and pray upon um, concerning repentance. Uh, Thomas Watson, an English Puritan preacher in the 17th century, wrote a book called The Doctrine of Repentance. Uh, I've read this book. It's short. uh, It's good. And... I would say it's very good, and I would say, read it. I recommend it to all of you, The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson. But in this book, um, Watson identifies six ingredients necessary for true repentance. I would listen to these, write these down if you want. Uh, I'll repeat them, but I would encourage you, go and, and look these up and go read this book, because I don't have time to go through all, like, dig into what all these are. So, Watson identifies six ingredients necessary for true repentance. Sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred of sin, and the last one is turning from sin and returning to the Lord. I'll say this one more time. Sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred of sin, turning from sin and returning to the Lord. Again, I really want, I really want to get into those because they're so good, but I'm not going to because lunch. <laughs> so moving along. Uh, so on this idea of repentance, this is just to kind of whet our appetite to be like, oh, you know what? Repentance is important. Maybe I should go study that some. That, that's what I'm doing. So Charles Spurgeon says this about repentance, and I know some of you, like Adam back there in the sound booth, was like, oh man, he's about to preach a sermon without a Spurgeon quote. Nope. Every time. Anyways, so Charles Spurgeon says this about repentance. Repentance is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of the very deep and practical character which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. And then lastly, last thing I'll say on repentance is, well, I won't say, is J.I. Packer writes this on repentance. He says this, Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. Woo! I don't know enough about repentance. That's what I just learned from those things right there. 
I need to read that book over and over and over and over and read this book over and over and over and over. Okay, so moving on. We're almost done, I swear. Jesus tells the disciples that, that if someone does not receive them or, or listen to their message, that his message, that, that as they leave, they are to shake the dust off of their feet. And the shaking off of, of dust was, was something that Jews often did in, in unclean pagan lands and cities. So for the disciples to do this in a, a Jewish village, it was to warn the village that it would have to answer to God on the day of judgment. It would, it would have been shocking to the Jewish townspeople to see their village treated as pagan Gentile territory. So despite all of this instruction to, to be kind, open, and respectful to non-believers, Jesus tells his disciples that, guess what? Some are going to reject. We as followers of Jesus, as I said, are drafted into his work, and we should anticipate rejection by some. There will be times that, that with a broken heart that we must warn others of the dangers of rejecting Christ and the judgment they will experience. We are to, to consistently warn people of the wrath of God even when they reject us. And, and our hope is that, that later they may think on that warning and that God will use it to bring them to faith. But the answer isn't to, to not warn them, to not preach those things. You see, Christian, uh, Christians throughout history have, have been seen as, as the most exclusive-sounding people, but the most inclusive-acting people. What do I mean by that? So Christians have been seen as the, the most exclusive-sounding people, exclusive in the fact that we say Jesus is the only way, because that's what the Bible teaches. Jesus is the only way. So that's, that's a very exclusive thing to say. It's the right thing to say, but it's very exclusive. And at the same time... Uh, Christians are the most inclusive acting people. Why? Because just like Jesus, we are, are to love others and to serve others and to help others. And, and, and the Bible even says things that God, so, God loved us so much that he sent his own son to die for us. All of this is very attractive. But the gospel is, is also offensive. The, the gospel causes, causes us to think things about ourselves that we don't want to think the gospel teaches us that we are sinful and wrong, that life isn't all about us, that we aren't at the center of the universe, but God is. It says things like that we don't get to live our lives however we want. We get to live our lives according to this. So it's very offensive. So how are we doing with, with these things, with the things of, of, of mission and repentance? Do we truly believe Christian community is necessary? Are we, are we people of repentance? Can it be said of you that you are a person of repentance? Have we readied ourselves for inevitable rejection? Or have we insulated our lives so much that maybe there's not even anyone around that we could share the gospel with? Or, or maybe have we watered down the truth of the gospel so much so that it's no longer offensive? Do we live lives worthy of the call that Christ has called us to? Do we live lives above reproach? Are we people who, whose lives would be summarized as servants? As a follower of Christ, do you ever suffer rejection? If, if not, why? Why? 
Because the, the Bible tells us that we, we should expect it. Is, it. is it maybe because we've compromised the gospel or are too afraid to speak the truth of the gospel? So here, here's what we can know. That when we, as we should, face rejection as we go along serving and, and preaching the gospel for the cause of Christ, we aren't alone. The Lord will be with us just as he was with the disciples after they were flogged for preaching the gospel. The, the Spirit of God will, will enable us, as he did with the disciples, to go rejoicing that we have been considered worthy to suffer some for his name. So we're never alone. And, and why, why can we do that? How can we endure rejection? Because again, we as followers of Christ should, should experience rejection. Because the Bible makes it clear that not everyone's going to accept. And the Bible also assumes that we're going to be going and telling others about the gospel. That we're going to go preaching the Bible. We're going to go preaching the gospel. So it assumes these things. So, so how can we endure rejection? And here's why. Because Jesus took the ultimate rejection. Because on the cross, Jesus truly became fatherless and got the rejection of God that we deserved. The rejection of Jesus is our ultimate acceptance. That means that we can, we can take any rejection because who cares what others think when we have the acceptance of the king? Here's what we can also know, that we, we don't have to hide in guilt and shame and fear because of all of our weaknesses and failings and shortcomings. When our, when our faith wavers and, and sways towards unbelief, we can ask for forgiveness knowing with assurance that the blood of Christ is strong enough to wash us clean. We can, we can run into the presence of God and proclaim, Lord, I believe, yet help my unbelief. And, and when we worship false idols that, that are in fact our own gods made to look like Jesus but aren't the real Jesus revealed to us in Scripture, we don't have to despair, but we can truly repent and ask the Lord to open our eyes to see and worship Jesus for who he truly is. Why can, why can all of these things be true? Because Jesus, who is God, humbled himself for you and for me and was born of a virgin, lived among us and yet lived perfectly as we never could have and then died in our place for our sins on the cross. Jesus paid the price for sin because we never could have. Jesus said, you can't save yourself, so I will come and be one of you and do what you never could do and then pay the debt that you owe. It's upside down and it's backwards. It's simple, and yet it's offensive. And that, my friends, is the message of our Savior. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that, that you speak to us through it. God, help us to, to not become so familiar, complacent, and, and comfortable 
with Jesus, that we are no longer in awe of the gospel, that, that we no longer listen to Jesus. Lord, help us to worship the true and real Jesus as revealed to us in your holy scriptures. Jesus, help us to know more about you. And as we do, God, may our response be to worship you more and to surrender to you more. God, may, may it never be said of us that, that we didn't permit you to display your power. Help us to submit and, and to trust in the promises of your word and the truths of your gospel. God, and, and, and when we don't, God, help us to run to you and to say, Lord, I believe, yet help the places where I don't believe. Jesus, help us to, to not take lightly that we have been drafted into the work of your kingdom and your mission. May we love others and at the same time be courageous enough to speak the truth and call unbelievers to repentance. Lord, may we be people of repentance. Jesus, we are so grateful. We are so grateful that you paid the price for our sins, for our failures and our shortcomings. Thank you that, that your rejection is our ultimate acceptance. It's in your holy, glorious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org. Thank you.